0: Good morning, good afternoon, Matthew Grant here, partner at Instech, and your host for another episode. Well, we had a very successful live face-to-face event here in London on the evening of the 2nd of March. Over 200 people in the room, and great to see so many familiar faces again, as well as welcoming overseas visitors from Australia, US, Canada, and Spain. Many thanks to Verisk for helping make that happen. Next event, 29th of March, find the details on the website. Well, if you join us regularly, you'll know that many of our podcast guests and our members are from outside of the UK. And in fact, if you're listening in from the UK just now, well, you are in the minority. Only 46% of you are UK listeners. Well, we may be be based in London, but we are most definitely broadcasting to the world. Well, climate has been a big theme for us and you too, I'm sure. And most recently, our report on climate change risk measurement and the 22 companies to look out for is now on the Instec website. This week, I'm talking to Rich Sorkin, the founder and CEO of Jupiter Intelligence, one of the companies we are featuring in that report. As you'll hear in a moment, the company has moved fast and in just four years is working with some of the leading insurers, banks, governments and other corporations. Rich explains what they are doing with some great case studies and reveals the secrets of their rapid growth. Rich, really looking forward to talking to you today. You've achieved an awful lot since you were founded back in 2017. I know you're providing analytics on the impact of climate change to insurers, but also governments, corporations, and a whole lot of others. You're helping them with information on wind speed, flood depth, fire, extreme rainfall, and you're looking at this both changes across time and across multiple different climate scenarios. And you're also helping your clients at the individual location level, as well as portfolio uh, looking at the individual assets in there. And according to our sources of pitchbook, you've raised funding of 97 million dollars. Uh, so welcome. I think it's quite early in the morning for you, Rich. So thank you for getting up early to join us. Matthew, it's always a delight to chat with you. Thank you for having me. I guess the first question is what motivated you to build Jupiter in the first place? It was really
1: two primary motivations. One is the uh, sort of personal and visceral sense that there was something quite fundamental happening in the world around climate change. And then the second is um, essentially the desire to do something about it. I've lived in California for several decades and we've all sort of personally experienced the changes that have occurred in the climate. And in California, that means it's gotten a little bit warmer, a little bit windier, Um, in some years, a little bit drier, which translates into fires that have been catastrophic in the last five, 10 years. And then lastly, I grew up in New York and things like Superstorm Sandy just didn't happen in places like New York before. And then the second thing is I, you know, I I just have a deep personal belief that leaders are responsible for the health and well-being of their Teams, whether it's employees or something else. So that was the main motivation.
0: And Rich, normally I, I give a quick synopsis of people's careers introduction. I counted 21 different things you've been doing uh, on LinkedIn. So I, I think we'll probably save the audience from those, but they can definitely go and have a look. Some of them actually really impressive. Uh, President of Kaggle, which I often use as an example of a, a really interesting way of uh, crowdsourcing. Uh, Problems and solving problems, but yeah, for you personally, I mean, what was it that actually took you from doing those different activities to to launching and, by all signs, looking very successful at launching a business uh, only five years ago now?
1: I worked in weather science and climate-related applications, and AI and uh, big data, and also um, quite a bit in economics and politics, Uh, and that collection of experiences, I think. Gives me a worldview along the lines of what we were talking about before a moment ago, um, of thinking about the these issues in a holistic way. And in 2015, um I was working uh, on a company that does aerial methane detection uh for the oil and gas industry. And as some of your audience probably knows, methane is the second most important driver of Uh, climate change um, as a greenhouse gas. Um, And when uh, the Paris Agreement got signed, um, you know, there were sort of two views. One was everything is addressed. It's now just all execution. And the other was the Paris Agreement is an important, crucially important first step, but the world has an awfully long way to go in addressing um, climate change before the impacts are going to be uh, are not going to be ever more severe every year, every year, and so Paris was sort of a seminal moment for me because of what I was seeing at the same time in terms of the accelerating impact of uh, climate change.
0: And I sometimes, I think, many of us feel in insurance we spend too much time talking to ourselves. In insurance, I mean, what you're bringing to this is experience already of working with organizations outside of insurance and I'm sure there's a very strong synergy there between the clients you've got and then the work you're doing in insurance. Uh, I know some of those are, are public and we're going to talk into some of those specific case studies a bit more, but I mentioned a few in the introduction there, but perhaps to just drill down into some of those specifically, you know, where you're working outside of the insurance industry.
1: So insurance is our third largest segment overall as a company and we've been working in insurance um, since almost the beginning of the company. Our largest and fastest growing segment is lending, both consumer lending as well as commercial lending. Uh, in the U.S., we work with half of the largest lenders, and then also internationally with folks like uh, Sumitomo Mitsui Bank and, and others in Europe and elsewhere. Our second largest sector is power. As I said, insurance is third a national security is fourth. So, um, you know, like, uh, an important billion dollar radar installation in the Pacific that's guiding missile defense, um, uh, would be a good example of the kind of things that we do, uh, in national security, both for the U.S. and, um, U.S. allied countries. Uh, and then after that, it's pretty much every sector of the economy and financial services. And, expensive uh, infrastructure of all kinds. So, Asset management, accounting, banking, chemicals, consulting, defense. In the public sector, again, emergency management and also big cities, food and beverage, minerals and mining, oil and gas, pharmaceuticals, consumer products. um, uh, You name it, we're typically working with one of the three largest or more of the three largest companies in any
0: given sector. You've got two complementary products. I mean, I know I'm dramatically oversimplifying what you're doing, but you look at it from the portfolio level, which I believe is Climate Score Global. And then you can also look at it from the, the asset level, as you as you mentioned in there. What are you providing to people and, and what are they doing with the information that you provide to, to increase resilience and, and making all the other decisions that I'm sure you can help them with? So
1: Climate Score Global is a good place to start. That basically covers the entire land surface of the planet, hence the name Global, and it allows our customers um, to look at their um, financial and physical assets at the portfolio level. So Think of this as if you had a lender with a portfolio of 20 million mortgages, they could look at that entire portfolio for the current year risk and how that's changing across the portfolio at the aggregate level and also concentrated risk through time. Um, and across the relevant metrics that impact their business, both the physical damage as well as the economic impact, like in the case of a lending portfolio, default risk and through time. So, you know, the average duration of a mortgage portfolio is about 15 years. Um, a lot of lenders like to look at seven years. In the U.S., the long tail is 30 years, especially if you're looking at refinancing. Historically, and this is especially true in insurance, almost everyone looks at one-year risk, um, and then the insureds use one-year risk as a proxy for their future risk, which works fine if the future risk is represent if the present risk is representative of the future risk. But if it's not, then that's a then that's a big problem, and you have essentially what the bankers call uh, duration mismatch, um, and. Yeah. That same Climate Score uh, global service can also be used for an entire company's physical assets or an asset manager's risk across all of their holdings. One simple example would be uh, looking at the risk of the production facilities and all the distribution choke points for a COVID vaccine or all of the products of a pharmaceutical company. So that's Climate Score global portfolio level services for physical and financial sense.
0: Okay, that was Climate Score Global. Now, Rich goes on to talk about Climate Score Planning.
1: Climate Score Planning allows our customers to take a deep dive into a specific facility or region with much more granular data and higher spatial resolution than is available in Climate Score Global and make decisions around, do they relocate? Do they increase their insurance? Do they harden the facility? Do they accelerate retirement of that facility? Um, and it's primarily um, around physical assets, single, very expensive physical assets, or it might be a regional portfolio. Like if you had a regional lender that just lent in the UK, they could use climate score planning. Um, uh, and so, um, you know, with that combination of services, Our customers basically can start with a quick overview of their risks, and then do something about the ones that are most important. Or if they know that they have a particular mission critical or very expensive asset, just start there because it's already on their radar.
0: And when you're modeling this risk, typically people looking at climate risk from certainly from insurance perspective, but any kind of asset, you're looking at both the physical hazard, but then also the vulnerability of the the properties. So, are you bringing both of those into this, the climate element and also looking at the individual properties themselves?
1: Yeah. So, one of the revolutionary things that Jupiter did from day one was say that the risk is a product of the intersection of what we call the terrain, which I'll come back to in a second, and the weather. And in both cases, the current or future state of the terrain and the weather. So you could have a facility that is elevated six inches, that today's weather is not really terribly problematic, in part because it's already elevated six inches. If it wasn't, it might be a problem. But then you fast forward and say, the wind is gonna get stronger, there's gonna be more rain in this particular location, both because of climate change. What's that gonna do to how high the vulnerability is From the water impact from the combination of storm surge and precipitation and water flowing downhill Um, and the downhill is a feature of the terrain not of the weather or the climate and then you might come to the judgment that six inches is not enough it really needs to be you know two meters but in 10 years from now so the owner of that asset could have a choice of either Hardening the facility in some way. Maybe it's a barrier of some kind, or maybe they're going to tear it down and rebuild it at a higher elevation, which is exactly what some of our customers are doing now. Um, uh, And it's critical to keep in mind that it's that intersection of the natural and uh, as built terrain, current and future state, including sea level rise, and the current and future state of the weather. As driven by climate change. And that's a that's a fundamental piece of what we do.
0: Thanks. And is that through scenarios or you know the what you might come across in the more traditional catastrophe modeling world of a probabilistic assessment as you as you're looking forward at the risk?
1: Yeah. Um <laughs> it's a little of both. So the way we think about this is there's a single scenario for the current year, which is It's built the way it's built in a place that's well understood. And the weather today is reasonably well understood. Two things are changing through time. One is the physical terrain. Um, You know, I like to joke that one of the big problems with climate change is that we keep tearing down paradise and putting up a parking lot, right? Because flooding gets worse. And we're just talking about flooding, not fire, but there really is a, there really is a driver as much as climate change is how and where we build. So that's one thing that's changing. And then the other thing that's changing is in most places, the weather is getting more severe and therefore creating more vulnerability. And in some places, the weather is actually getting more benign. Um, and so knowing whether that's happening and how that's happening and in what time frame matters quite a bit. So those are. Uh, there are scenarios for the changes in the terrain, there are scenarios for changes in the weather, which the scientists refer to as RCPs or SSPs, and the majority of our customers have no idea what that means, and we say, best, worst, and likely case. And Some of our customers say, one scenario, one probability distribution, one place, and other customers say, three different points in time, three scenarios for the climate, um, uh 20 million locations, 20 different physical metrics of the impacts and the economic impacts. And that gets to be a very, very big number in terms of what our most sophisticated consumers are essentially pulling into their own data lakes and into their own analytic model chain.
0: No, thanks, Richard. And the RCPs, which is the Representative Concentration Pathways, I believe, are also tied back in for, for the insurance companies in the UK or with exposures in the UK sure. to the scenarios that the, the Bank of England is asking people to report on. So but so they're relevant, but as you say, they don't mean anything to anybody until you connect them back to temperature and, and sea level rise, which, is, which all makes a lot of sense. And then on the topic of insurers, what's your view on insurers relative to banks and others. Now, you know, I come at this as slight bias because I've worked with insurance for a long time and felt that the insurance industry was actually better at many of the banks in, in thinking about risk and in particular climate risk. But what, what's been your experience? I guess it's two versions of this question. One is insurers relative to other industries. And then there's also within insurance itself, what's the sort of spread of experience and commitment to uh, addressing this problem?
1: I would say that insurance versus banking is a super interesting question and um, the answer is a bit counterintuitive. Um, and there are a couple of reasons for this. One is that the insurance industry is geared towards one-year risk. If the risk goes down, prices might go down or they might just be more profitable. If the risk goes up or they have a bad year and capital flows out of the system, prices go up. and the industry is not really geared to think about how risk is changing during the long term and in fact all the analytic models that are used by the insurance industry start today with the assumption that the future looks like the past which is just wrong and is one of the fundamental problems that exists for the insurance industry today but the implications of that are not short term they're longer term so the other big challenge that the insurance industry has that's really particular to them is that they've outsourced their modeling infrastructure to a very large extent in ways where they can't control their own workflows. And to change the modeling infrastructure is actually quite hard. And simultaneously, they're they're facing a slow-moving danger, not a danger on the immediate horizon. Whereas if you look at a bank, big bank, they tend to be bigger More sophisticated, they hold long duration assets and they have much more control over their own modeling infrastructure and risk framework. And they're on the front line in terms of what regulators are most sensitive to on this particular topic. And so, for all of these much more subtle reasons, the banks are actually, generally speaking, the big banks are much more sophisticated and further along than the insurance
0: companies. Couple of things that strike me from that. One, one is you know, banks, as you say, both take a long-term view. But actually, also one of the the challenges for some of the companies set up in the last five, ten years that felt they could come in and, and disrupt insurance was thinking the decisions were made with the kind of frequency and speed which banks make them, which is you know, sometimes is in milliseconds. But certainly, you know, many different decisions a day. Whereas insurers not only are only looking at one year horizon, they're also typically only making decisions once a year at the point of underwriting, but the, What's also changing, I'd say, is the role of regulation in insurance, which is now starting to force companies to look at what might be happening in the future, but they now need to report on it in the next business cycle or the current business cycle in a 12 month cycle. So I think we're going to start to see more of that. And we are actually seeing much more of that focus around that you know, comes on a different terminology, whether it's ESG or net zero carbon or, or climate yeah. change. So a lot, yeah, lots of ways I think the insurance industry can learn from banks and how they've reacted to this. But back on that second part of my question was within insurance itself, mm. what are you seeing with regards to the breadth of all, all the spread of how companies are, are addressing this between those that are you know, doing it well and those that are doing it less well?
1: This is a great question and um, your comment about regulatory. And I would say, Government policy, more generally, is an important dynamic, but it also gets to the way companies behave. We like to think of insurance companies as falling into one of three categories: leaders, fast followers, and laggards. You know, leaders are ones where there's board or C-suite attention. It's identified as a corporate priority, and there's not necessarily massive amounts of uh, investment in doing a better job than they are today or doing a different uh, job than they are today, but a meaningful amount of investment. The fast followers have made a deliberate decision that they have a little bit of time, not a lot of time, but they have a little bit of time, and they are simultaneously running smaller scale experiments um, or um, carefully watching what their peers are doing. And The laggards generally are the ones who just don't view this as a as a priority either now or in the in the next few years. And there's nothing that stops a laggard from becoming a leader. And by the way, there's nothing that stops a leader from becoming a laggard and once things are moving moving quickly. But our best customers tend to be the ones that have chosen to be leaders and our second best customers are the ones that are our fast followers and doing things on a smaller scale with us. And generally we look at the laggards and say, when they decide to be serious, will engage in a meaningful way. And among the leaders, there's actually quite a diversity of things that they're doing. So I'll pick three companies in three different continents: MSNAD in Japan,
0: uh, Zurich in uh, Europe, and Liberty Mutual in the Americas. Okay, here we go. Three case studies. We've split them all up for you two.
1: MSNAD in part based on jupiter analytics rolled out a service to help their insureds understand the risk to their physical and financial portfolios and the best example of a company doing this is you know one of the top banks in in japan sumitomo mitsui bank also referred to as smbc it's basically the use case that i gave you before of how is mortgage risk changing but also What's the risk to their branch network, their physical infrastructure that the banks all own, where they have employees and customers? In Europe, Zurich's employed a strategy of rolling out a business that is ancillary, but not part of their core insurance business to help their customers become more resilient. Um, It's sort of a the risk engineering piece of the insurance business, but on steroids. And that covers supply chain, cyber, and climate change risk, which, oh, by the way, intersect with each other a little bit. And it's a brand new business unit. It's a brand new service. They're leveraging the assets of the insurance company, but they're doing it in a non-regulated business. And then the third example is Liberty Mutual, where Liberty Mutual is working very, very closely with their customers to help them understand how these risks are changing and what they can do about it in a way that's much closer to what we've traditionally thought of as risk engineering and also directly leverages kind of the core infrastructure of the insurance business. And we view that in terms of what Liberty Mutual is doing as some very sophisticated work that is also a building block for lots of other things that they can do going forward which I think all of these companies think of it in that way. Um, So, you know, those are examples of what leaders are doing. And then everything is sort of short of that in the other categories of fast followers and laggards.
0: It sounds like the way, certainly Zurich and Liberty, the examples you're giving, are doing this is around that idea of risk mitigation for their clients as opposed to working with you to look at future risk Sounds like they're not using it for underwriting as such. They're using it more as a collaboration, long-term customer engagement strategy.
1: MSNAD also in a similar way. It's just for their customers. It's a first step to getting to the um, risk mitigation, if you will. Um, and the disclosure requirements drive a lot of change in behavior. It's like we now expect corporate executives to at least understand these risks um, beyond just one year as a proxy. For future risks, that's a big, big mindset
0: change. Back on this point about you mentioned that Zurich has set up a separate company, mm-hmm. and Liberty clearly is investing a lot to support their clients. Without having to name specific client names, but are you seeing that these insurance companies have now got an opportunity to generate new revenue streams from doing this? Because there's a lot of cost of of going out and supporting clients in this area, you know, over and above what they might have traditionally have done for risk engineering or just you're performing an assessment for underwriting. So it makes it expensive to do this unless they can find a way to recoup some of those costs.
1: Yeah, well, let me put this in perspective. Uh, Jupiter is a little over four years old. The first year we built the team and we built the product and we had no real material revenue. In the last three years, we've grown revenue about a hundredfold. Now, if you're an insurance company and you look at the rate of growth and the demand for the kinds of services that we provide, an insurance company that's thinking about top line growth and new services and not just let's keep doing what we're doing because that's easy and we make money and everyone's happy. Um, they, a lot of them look at what we do and say, this is a huge growth opportunity. And it's also a opportunity to have deeper engagement with our customers or what they often refer to as clients. Um, and add more value in the relationship. So for the forward looking ones, Jupiter and Jupiter type services are enormously attractive. The impact of climate change touches almost everything in a fundamental way that almost no one has thought about prior to a couple, couple of years ago. And it's a massive, massive opportunity. And there are a lot of different ways to build new revenue growth as a result of that including quite a bit of sophisticated financial engineering around how do you take the volatility of these risks out of the system, which ultimately is kind of the essence of what insurance is about.
0: Rich, in terms of the information you're providing, whether it's information you're sourcing or from third parties, we couldn't hope to do full justice to that in a relatively short discussion, but what do you share with people and what do they ask for to help them understand and validate the information you're providing? Because people are making some quite important and expensive or potentially expensive decisions based on what you're sharing with them.
1: What our customers are often doing, if it's for a physical asset, is they're saying the assumptions of the vulnerability are different in the future during the life of the asset than they were 10 years ago when we started the architecture and engineering and design and siting process. That again, it's a mindset change. You can still use the exact same model. You're just flowing different assumptions into that. We have a whole model chain that drives what those assumption changes are that's based on a broad set of data, radar data, LIDAR data, um, uh, buoy gauge data. Heat sensors, um, drones, um, data from all kinds of places, as well as a, a large number of models, because the model for what the future risk from wind and the model for what the future risk from fire are very different models. And in almost every case, there's someone on the Jupiter team that, in their prior instance in their career, worked on or even developed. Those models. So that's a huge advantage that we have. Now you go to a sophisticated customer and they say, How do you do what you do? Oh, by the way, we're going to have to tell the regulators why we chose you and how your stuff works. And we have hundreds of pages of documentation that literally walk through every single step and assumption in the process. It's confidential. The folks that are actually using, the information if they want to, and not everyone actually chooses to do this, but if they want to, they can get into literally every single nook and cranny of what we do. Hi, Rebecca here, the Director of Research and Insight at INSTEC. On the 15th of March, we'll be launching our latest report, Algorithmic Underwriting and Specialty Insurance, an Implementation Guide in Six Case Studies. The report will launch with a live chat on the 15th, hosted by Robin. The panel will examine the key themes that emerge from the case studies provided by our friends at Vave, Key Syndicate, Rethink, Verisk Specialty Business Solutions, Guidewire and a combined case study from Artificial Labs and Chaucer. Full details of how to sign up are available on our website www.instech.london.
0: You have moved incredibly fast. I mean, some companies started when you did and they're still in sort of pilot stage or proof of concept. Can you share a couple of your tips for people that want to move fast when they set up a company and, and actually get some real success with you know some significant clients?
1: Well, if you want to go fast, decide to go fast and gear the company to do that. That's the first thing that I would say. And, you know, Jupiter, there's a motto. Um, it's on whiteboards, In offices throughout the company and also we have hats where it's there and it's basically speed wins. And that's, you know, a core part of our strategy and the way we're geared. The other thing that I would say though is velocity is an absolute metric. Fast is a subjective judgment. So most of the management of the company, not all of us, but most of us come out of Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley is a place where you go fast or you die. There's this concept, minimum viable product, which is just do the minimum thing that the customer is going to value and nothing else. And it's going to have a lot of flaws and it's not going to scale and it's going to be a mess. And if the customer likes it and it's valuable enough, they'll look past that. And then you have time to get it right and continuously improve it. And if they don't like it, then just throw it away because it was an assumption that customers would want something. And we have a really good example of this in Jupiter. We invested a million dollars at a time when all we had was 10 million dollars. So it was 10% of all the money that we had in the world in a product which we were super optimistic everyone was going to want and want quickly. And no one bought it. And I said, we have these two other things that people are buying. Kill the product. And all the people working on it were like, we just spent a year working on this product. You can't just kill it. And I'm like, yes, we can. Customers are telling us they don't want to pay for it. Stop investing in it. And as you might imagine, there was a lot of frustration around that decision among the people who had worked on it. Fortunately, they then got to work on things that customers were buying. And it's very, very satisfying when you develop something. And customers buy it and use it. It's quite unsatisfying to work on something that just never sees the light of day. So it was a short term pain, but we made the decision, we moved on, and that was how we were able to move quickly.
0: Yeah, and that's really helpful. One final question for you, just as we wrap up, is if there's one thing above all else that you want people to take away from this, what would that be with regards to either what you're doing just now or what to look out for in the future?
1: Duration mismatch is a huge problem. So if you design something for today's conditions or 10 years ago, and the conditions change and you haven't planned for it, people will die. Supply chains will get disrupted. Hospitals will not operate. Military bases will not function properly. And the financial consequences for the insurance companies and the lenders and the asset managers will ripple through and quite material ways beyond just the human toll of people dying. So any company that isn't aware of and thinking about the implications of duration mismatch, and for that matter, governments, and moving reasonably quickly are really just sort of fundamentally negligent.
0: Well, duration mismatch is a very clear call to why somebody should come and get to know you better. Rich, I have learned an awful lot there. We managed to Get a lot into the time and look forward to learning more about you and and watching your success in in the future it's been a real pleasure
1: well it was a great pleasure thanks so much for the opportunity i'll be back in the uk as soon as COVID abates a bit more and uh i look forward to seeing you again in person
0: you can learn more about jupiter and all the other companies we featured in our report on climate change regulation and risk measurement free to members and others for a limited period on the website www.instech.london, And we're going to be back live in London, as I mentioned, at Codenode, that's near Moorgate, on the 29th of March. Details on the website. Good news, for members, that we now have a much easier login process. Look out for an email about that. If you're wondering why so many companies are working with us today, I think it's over 160 now, then take a look at our member section on the website and please contact us, hello at instec.london. more details we always welcome ideas for guests for the podcast but generally give priority to our members and partners so please do bear that in mind if you're contacting us with ideas and finally our thoughts are of course with all those caught up in the war in ukraine we've had 112 downloads of the podcast from ukraine in the last couple of years a reminder of how globally connected we all are these days